Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that you may be with us as we open your word and, and seek to uh, understand it, Lord God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit uh, and his work in helping us in understanding uh, the marvel uh, of, of the revelation of your word. Lord God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In October, there was a uh, USC, UFC fight, that is the ultimate fighting championship, uh, and this occurred in Abu Dhabi, and this um, bout lasted uh, three rounds uh, within the octagon, uh, and they declared the winner, and the winner was an Iranian-American fighter called Benil Darush. Of course, after the fight... They immediately want to interview him and discuss all the, all the things that occurred within this actual fight. However, he had something really important to say before he even touched um, the questions. Before a crowd of mostly Muslim attendees, Darush uh, saw it necessary to address the current protests that have um, sparked over in Iran uh, because of the death of Masha Amini uh, while in police custody. Her crime for breaking the dress code. Darush uh, encouraged the protesters uh, to continue to fight for freedom. However, he would declare that their true freedom can be found somewhere else. This is what he said. I want you guys to know that we're praying for you and we love you. Let me tell you one more thing. This might be the most important thing you'll ever hear. There is true freedom, a freedom no one can take from you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you remember one thing I say, remember that. His statement doesn't seem all that remarkable until you consider where he is. Uh, he is in uh, the middle of a country where it is illegal to evangelize. Uh, Abu Dhabi certainly allows a freedom of religion, but that freedom only extends beyond, um, to the private citizen. So court evangelizing, court uh, prophetizing, uh, even converting can have legal and social ramifications. Uh, to declare the freedom of Christ in front of a crowd of Muslims, especially directed towards a country of Iran that has far harsher punishments, well, that seems quite bold in front of uh, threatening circumstances. Now, Darush's boldness might come from the fact that he is uh, a very well-established professional fighter. I know I won't be in the front line to try to face him out in the streets. But I'm sure he knew that what he was saying could land him in hot water. Yet, despite the consequences, he declared that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was our only true freedom. In Australia, we have the freedom to evangelize, to share the message of the gospel. There really isn't anything holding us back. So the question I have is, why don't we evangelize? Day in and day out, we are offered opportunities to share the gospel, but when those moments occur, we seem to have far more excuses to not share. And I was reflecting on some of the hurdles that we might have um, that prevent us from sharing this gospel. Um, and here are a few that I came up with. Apathy. 
We just don't see the urgency in sharing the gospel. Social stigma. Sharing uh, the gospel invites an openness to debate. It, it makes us vulnerable to disapproval from those around us. Divisiveness. The gospel divides people and it can harm relationships. What I'm, now I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that the gospel harms people. I'm saying that the response that people have towards the gospel can deteriorate relationships. A lack of confidence. We aren't confident in the knowledge of the gospel or God's word. Or we're afraid that we don't know what to say when the time comes. And so evangelism just gets put into the too hard basket and we just move on. Relationship circles. We just haven't invested any time in building relationships with anyone outside of the church. Busyness. Other things are more important and take precedence. Those are just a few that I could think of, and I'm sure there might be other excuses. But how did I go? Which one, do they relate to you? Which ones relate to you? Mark Deva writes this about evangelism. Even at the time you're not witnessing, you're busy spinning, justifying, rationalizing, explaining to your conscience why it was really wise and faithful and kind and obedient not to share the gospel with a particular person at that time in that situation. Man, that that hit me in the heart. but I want to get to the root. I want to get to the root of why we don't. And I don't think it's just one thing. At best, uh, it's a church that is timid and has doubts. At worst, it is a church that is ashamed of the gospel. But declaring the message of the gospel does require a boldness and either an opposition to the backlash that we could receive from others or from our very selves, from what is in in our nature. And that nature is to be timid. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at the birth of the church. We're going to look at Acts and, and we're going to peer into what it was like for the growing pains of the church. And Acts 4 is only one example that we as a church can take on, on board as we consider evangelism or pro, um, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, and today I want to address four things uh, that Acts 4 helps the church when, we, uh, when it comes to that evangelism. Uh, first, the message is authoritative. Two, the Holy Spirit emboldens us. Three, the message divides for evangelism begins and ends with prayer. And so the first one, the message is authoritative. In Acts 4, we see that there's a controversial arrest and trial that came off the heels of a healing that, of a crippled man back in chapter 3. Uh, after the healing, Peter preaches Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection, repentance and salvation. The healing was a sign of God's restorative work uh, through Christ. Uh, New creation has arrived. 
And this new creation is seen in the healing of the blind, the sick, and the crippled people uh, in faith. And Christ's death made this all possible. And Christ's resurrection is, uh, guarantees that our restoration will occur sometime. It is this message that really had the gears grinding uh, for the Jewish leaders, and more specifically, the Sadducees. Uh, Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't believe that the resurrection was even possible. See, the Sadducees were the aristocrats of the Jewish people. Um, They were attempting to keep the status quo with the Romans and seeking political and religious opportunities to gain any authority or power that they could ever grab onto. Or as it's been said, uh, they were the political sycophants who would sell their mothers to stay in power. I like that quote. They had their hands in the pockets of the Romans. They, they worked to gain any key positions within the Jewish leadership uh, and or the council. At this time, they were in charge of the maintenance, the rituals, the teaching that occurred within the temple grounds. So the temple was their domain. And then here we have two rebel raisers going around healing people and preaching that there's salvation. How dare they? So getting the priests and the captain of the temple, we see they were greatly annoyed in verse 2. In fact, that doesn't quite capture the feeling that they were expressing. Uh, They were angry. They were enraged. And Luke tells us why. The author uh, tells us why. Uh, Because they were teaching and they were proclaiming Jesus' resurrection. And here's why that angered them. Peter and John were unauthorized to teach in the temple, and so this undermined the authority of the Sadducees. And the message that they were teaching about the resurrection undermined the Sadducees' political, social, and religious positions uh, and could potentially disrupt the uh, relationship that they have built with the Roman authorities. In other words, the message that they were teaching and preaching threatened their authority and power. Everything they worked towards, the deals that they made, the mothers that they sold, all would be for nothing if this message was spread and it was believed. And we see authority being the underlying issue uh, and motivator for the Jewish leaders. Look with me at verse 7. After being placed before the Sanhedrin, that is the uh, judicial council, uh, they were questioned about the healing of the crippled man. And this is the question that they posed. By what power or what name did you do this? The council knew that the healing required a supernatural power, but they wanted to know where the source of this power came from. The question was supposed to incriminate them. Or to quote General Akbar from Star Wars, it's a trap. The Jewish leaders knew that the healing was a testimony of Peter and John's message and the message's authority came from the one whose power healed that man. And so any other name other than God would have incriminated them. And this highlights something about the message that Peter and John is preaching. 
the message is authoritative. The substance, the content, the results, it all challenges the power and authority of institutions, governments, kingdoms, empires. It even challenges the, the um, individual's autonomy over their life. The message calls for humbleness and acknowledgement that there is a greater authority that can do more than what humanity is even capable of doing. And so when confronted with a message that challenges the individual or group's control, it leaves them with only one question. By whose authority? And Peter and John's answer uh, to the question was very clear. They were arrested for the message they had before, but now they have an opportunity to modify just slightly their teaching. So it sounds like that they're towing the line so they, they can avoid any prosecution. They wouldn't be wrong if they were to say that God healed the man. But in Peter's boldness, he doesn't just change the, he doesn't change the message, but calls out the ridiculousness of this, uh, uh, these charges, calls out their guilt, proclaims where the authority um, that healed the man came from, and in turn, where the message receives its authority. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame or being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and this man stands before you healed. In boldness, he declares the authority and power comes from Jesus Christ. But Peter doesn't mince his words. He calls out the leaders like a fiery arrow to the heart and reminds them that what they did to Jesus. You remember this Jesus, right? You remember you crucified him the other day, but despite your best efforts, God vindicated him and he raised him from the dead. And then Peter turns the discussion around by showing what all of this means, and it was in order that salvation could be secured. Uh, verses 11 and 12, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is the power of Christ. It is in his name that salvation is even possible. So we see where the message's authority comes from. It comes from the one who was resurrected and has now offers salvation to all who hears. And his name is Jesus Christ. When we preach, when we evangelize, it isn't a message that is feeble or it exists in a vacuum competing with other messages for its right to be heard. It comes with power and authority. And granted, it, it is all well and good to have a message that has power and authority. It's a whole other thing when we consider how we deliver it. But thankfully, God has that covered too. And that brings us to the next point. Point number two, the Holy Spirit emboldens us. 
I think if I was to do a survey around the room, uh, many of you would agree that public speaking would be one of your fears. Am I right? Yeah? Not many would be willing to come up here and be uh, and able to talk in front of a crowd and talk about something important or even make yourself vulnerable in front of a crowd of people. Uh, I'm sure you'll be glad to know that you are not alone in this. Jay-Z, in his early career, was incredibly afraid of performing. It seems he has 99 problems and public performance is one of them. Some got that, some others, that's all right. Winston Churchill wasn't always a great orator. His first speaking role in the House of Commons saw him freeze for up to three minutes and then stumble over his, uh, a few phrases when he could speak and then he sat down in humiliation. The one that captured me the most was a Roman philosopher, Cicero, living in the first century BC. Uh, and his writings are still read today. Uh, he was also known as being the greatest orator in the Roman Republic. But this is what he goes on to say about public speaking. Personally, I am always very nervous when I begin to speak. Every time I make a speech, I feel I'm submitting to judgment, not only about my ability, but my character and honour. There is something that we can take from this that I believe that continues to display itself 2,100 years later. Something that we naturally gravitate to. We are afraid of being judged. And that feeling doesn't change about the very people who are here to support, to love and to encourage us. And if that's the case that we have that in here in the church, what is it like outside of the church? It would be worse, right? If we are afraid of what people think of us in here, we can forget about being open vulnerable and bold when we try to evangelize and preach the gospel. Though in this weakness that we all share, this is where God shows his grace. Because God emboldens us by and through the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus encourages the disciples by telling them in Acts 1, uh, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And look what, what emboldens Peter in front, uh, in front of the leaders. In verse 8, in chapter 4, then, the Pe and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and even the leadership were amazed by their boldness. Verse 13, And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they, looked, uh, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men were not trained men. They didn't have an education like the leaders that sat before them judging what to do with them. They were just ordinary. The ESV calls them common. In fact, 
This is a little bit of trivia. I haven't written this down. Uh, a little bit of trivia. That word in the Greek is where we get the word idiot from. Now, I was very tempted to call this a message for the idiots, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that would have uh, flown very well. There's nothing special about them. Yet, these men, the, the, the leaders, were astonished by their boldness despite their shortcomings. But of course they were astonished because they didn't see what was giving them the power to evangelize. It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led them and gave them the confidence and they declared that salvation is only found in the authority and power of Jesus Christ. And as a church... The Holy Spirit continues to embolden us today. Evangelizing is not something that we need to do on our own. Our strength comes from God himself. But when I was going through this passage and I read this, I had to sit back and really reflect, uh, and I had to ask myself a question. And I'll ask you what I asked myself. Do you actually believe this? Honestly, do you actually believe this? When we, were, uh, when we were in the moment with the opportunity to share the gospel, do you believe that, there, that the Holy Spirit is there empowering you, emboldening you to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ, declaring salvation is only found in Him? Because from this text, there are three things that the Holy Spirit does for the church. He gave them the wisdom beyond what people were expecting. He gave them the words to speak. He empowered them even to be able to heal others. Yet our fear about what others might think, the social stigma, or even the fear of not knowing what to say seems to wash this truth from our minds. And this fear has been noted by clinical psychologist Harriet Breaker. And she, should, uh, she suggests that this is a form of people-pleasing. Or as she has stated, people-pleasing feelings. The anxiety we feel in anticipation in confrontation can lead into protecting ourselves by avoiding confrontation altogether. And even, even though... Uh, we might not realize this or not, this fear also affects and shapes our behavior and our thoughts. We act and we think depending upon the fear of what others may think and what they might be judging us on. And though avoidance of this seems to be a good tactic, it's quite faulty because it never allows ourselves to effectively manage or deal with conflict. So anxiety doesn't diminish, it actually gets worse. And our opportunities to share the gospel become slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and slimmer until there's nothing left. But as we will see in the next point, the message does divide. So sharing the gospel doesn't really help with this fear and anxiety. 
Though there is one who is able to help. There is one who does embolden us. And this person is the Holy Spirit. We can't control how others will react to the gospel. But we proclaim trusting that God will move hearts. And that was even the case with the apostles proclaiming the message. Even though they were emboldened by the Holy Spirit, we see two responses from two different groups of people. So the point number three, the message divides. The leadership were unable to oppose what Peter and John had said because the man that was healed was literally standing right before them. A man who was crippled, standing right before them. They can't deny it. Verse, uh, Verse 16 What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They have not only heard with their ears the message, their eyes are the witnesses to the power and authority of Jesus And they don't even deny that the notable sign has occurred. They don't even deny that it confirms their message. Yet, despite the evidence, they still go on to warn them not to spread this gospel. Why? Because the message threatens their authority. However, they aren't dismissing the message or the sign. They are rejecting God himself. Their issue is with God. The message is true whether they believe it or not. However, we see another response to the message. Verse 4, we see 5,000 men believing the message of Peter and John and what they were preaching. And we see that the people um, who have witnessed this miracle of healing praise God. Uh, End of verse 21, All the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. In this passage, we see two responses. We see uh, um, we have two responses to the message and the sign of salvation. One group rejects the message. And another group recognizes God's hand in the situation. We have one group who tries to hinder God. We have another group who fall on their knees and start praising him and, his, and what he has done. And the apostles recognize this in verse 19. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The leaders might be able to ignore what they have seen and what they have heard and what is quite clearly in front of them, but the apostles refuse. Their motivation comes from witnessing the work of God before their very eyes. And look at the result of their faithful preaching. A man walks and people are praising God. And I wonder if an element of holding us back from evangelizing is that we expect the response that we see here from the leaders. We are pessimistic 
rather than optimistic. The apostles got it. We preach because of God. We preach because of what God has done, regardless of the responses we might get back. And despite some people rejecting the message, many end up praising God. And seeing more and more people glorifying God should be our goal. We evangelize and share the good news to see God glorified. That is the blessing that we can offer to people. That is what is in our hands. Not only that, they, that Jesus is a means of salvation, but that the people can find joy in praising and worshipping God. But however, none of this is even possible without prayer. Which leads us into the final point. It begins and ends with prayer. At the end of the trial, they have been released and they head back to the community of believers to report about everything that has just occurred, including the warning from the leaders. And so they got together and they discussed new and innovative ways to get around the hindrance of the leaders uh, that, have, that they have placed on, you know, with the warning that they've placed on them, and new methods that they can use to preach the gospel. No, that's not what they did. What was their first response? The first response was to pray. The church prays. Prayer is an important part of evangelism. Prayer is the communication to God from humanity. However, it's more than just an act of speaking. It is also a response of who God is and what he has done. In a moment of prayer, believers are humbling themselves and submitting to the sovereignty of God. It recognizes God's power, influence, control, and authority over all situations and people. And this includes evangelism. It is God who initiates the gospel. It was God who sent his son in order to save humanity. It was God who calls people. It is God who sends his people to evangelize. And the church's prayer in Acts really highlights these points. But briefly, if we aren't sure how to pray, this is a great prayer to use for a structure of your own. We have adoration of God as creator. We have, him, we have them using scripture and God's promises as the basis or the foundation for this prayer. We have God's sovereignty and providence over events and its circumstances. And we have supplication and intercession, asking God to intervene and praying for others. But this prayer is not only a response of what just happened. It is also a prayer for future opportunities. Look, look at verse 29. Look what they pray for. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, Jesus Christ. They don't pray for God to remove the threats. They pray for more boldness. 
Their prayer reveals how they see their role in evangelism and, where, and what God's role is in evangelism. Believers are to share the good news with boldness while God heals sinners. As sinners, we are blind, dead and powerless to respond in a positive way to the gospel unless God intervenes and changes the person and regenerates the sinner. That's what makes the healing so significant. They represent the spiritual healing God is doing for sinners. They're being restored. They're being given new life through the faith in Jesus Christ. And the church's role is to share this good news. Our first response when facing opposition is usually to pray that opposition away. But don't take, and, and usually we don't take the next step until that opposition is gone or it disappears. And so we wait and we stagnate, and the situation becomes the very excuse as to why we can't evangelize to the people around us. But praying for that opposition to disappear isn't wrong, but my, my question is. Are you praying for boldness during those times? Boldness to share God's good news. The good news that the Father sent His Son to save sinners and to restore them just like you and me. Is prayer even our first response? Do we pray even before we are faced with the opportunity to evangelize? How is prayer influencing your ability to share the gospel? We have a message that is authoritative. We have a God who is sovereign, a Holy Spirit that is with us, empowering us, and we have prayer. You are not alone. The message you have, the gospel, is not weak but powerful. It is not timid but authoritative. It comes from the very one who created the heavens and the earth. And it is all made possible through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If anything, be encouraged that this message isn't about you. It is not about your ability to be able to convey the gospel. It is about Jesus Christ who brings power of salvation through his name. And God draws men to himself and heals sinners to see the truth. And our role is to proclaim the gospel for all to hear. If you feel timid or anxious about sharing the gospel, then pray. God delights. He finds joy in helping us see the church grow. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunities to preach the good news of salvation. That's the blessing that you hold in your hands. So let us pray for boldness now. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we, we thank you that you're a God who has uh, given us the power to declare the good news. Lord, you are the one who has sent your Son. You are the one who gave us the gospel. You are sovereign over all things. Lord, we pray for more opportunities to share your gospel, Lord God. We pray for boldness when we're facing those that we love outside.
May many more come to know the joy of praising your name. And Lord God, be with us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.